turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 5. The author is unknown, and ultimately the destination to the people that he's writing to is unknown. I, I have my uh, opinions on the destination. I believe it was one of three letters that was written to the Roman church during a time of persecution. In this case, it was written to a Jewish Christian congregation in Rome. That's my opinion. But without any doubt or any question, the author's intention is to write a, a letter of encouragement. Uh, some of the commentaries have been titled uh, the book of Hebrews and an epistle of warning, and certainly there are warnings from one end of this epistle to the other. But all the warnings are truly set in the spirit of encouragement. This author wants us in times of persecution or in any time to be greatly encouraged by who the Lord is. Now in chapter 6, in the first verses, he talks about us pressing on to maturity, and that's what we want to discuss. He wants to encourage us in this. He wants us to press on, and he wants us to do that, first of all, in our relationship with Jesus Christ. So we need in a new year to press on in this relationship with Jesus Christ. The second thing is that he would have us press on to maturity in our understanding of the knowledge of the people of faith that are recorded throughout the scriptures, that we would know their testimony and that we would be greatly encouraged by the way they lived before God, especially when times were tough. But now, like any good pastor, this man is a recruiter. And the third thing that we want to see is the word let us. He's always using this. This is his signature word, let us. And, and the idea is that as he encourages you, that you would encourage each other. And that all throughout the year, it would be a great year of us encouraging one another to press on to maturity. Again, he writes to encourage us. He tells us of Jesus' ministry as a high priest. That ministry as a high priest is meant to encourage us as the ones he has come to save. And the writer wants us to move in that direction, to focus on Christ and to be encouraged by him. Beginning our reading in chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this we have much to say. It is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. 
For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary uh, doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washing and the laying on of hands and the resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love which you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Now, Father, break the bread of life to us by your Holy Spirit. Help us to see Jesus and to be encouraged. We pray in his name with thanksgiving. Amen. Now, the author is asking us to press on in our maturity, in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And we think of many ways in which this has been sung about in the past. There's songs we sing from bygone days. Getting to know you. Getting what? All about you. You know, we, we can truly hang our hat just basically on a, a, a very basic knowledge of the person of Jesus Christ. We can do that. But the author's goal is that we would be prepared for all the various things that can come into us in our life. We don't know what life has for us. Uh, here in the United States or anyone else for that matter at any time in any place in the world. We just don't know. And so it would be better not to just have a basic understanding of the person of Christ, but to have a growing and deeper understanding of who this one who is our Savior is. 
And as you go into the epistle here, you find that this author is telling us a great deal about the person of Christ. In these opening words that we read in the, uh, in the bulletin here, the opening verses of this epistle that are found right at the bottom, we see that he talks about Christ as being God's perfect prophet. Uh, we could say he is God's perfect interpreter. Jesus Christ is God's perfect mouthpiece. He is the one who comes to teach us who his Father is. And in coming in this way, uh, Jesus is coming to us not like the Old Testament prophets who spoke primarily to the leaders. It says he spoke to the fathers. But he comes to speak, and he comes to speak directly to you, directly to me, so that when we read the words of the Scripture and the work of the Holy Spirit using the words that we're reading, those words become to us as the Holy Spirit brings them into life in our hearts and minds, the very speaking of Jesus Christ to each one of us. We should understand it. What is God doing? He's developing a relationship. Any good relationship is built upon good communication. And God has sent his best communicator to us in order that we might know him through this son as perfectly as possible. You know, a relationship, a good relationship, is built upon time, in time in which we pay much close attention to what the person's saying. Um, some of the marriage counseling books that I read, they'll, they'll say things like this. You know, if your partner is a person that when they speak to you and they've got something to say and they lean forward when they say it, good communication skills is what they lean forward to tell you something. Well, you lean forward to try to listen to it. It just shows you're really paying attention to what they have to say. We need to pay as close attention as possible to all the things that Jesus is saying to us. That's what the author is encouraging us to do. Jesus is the perfect prophet that God has sent into the world to communicate his love to us and all the things that we should do as his children. But you also see here, it speaks of Jesus being the perfect priest. Every relationship has bumps. Every relationship, because we're human, involves some way of, of there becoming impediments that get into the relationship. In this whole business of speaking of impediments between our relationship with our God, we call those impediments clearly sins, things that we have done to violate the relationship. And yet, in this epistle, we want to be encouraged to understand that God the Father has made provision for us in these sins, in these impediments that we bring into the relationship, in that he has sent his Son to be a perfect high priest. It says here in these verses that we read a few minutes ago, he made purification for sins. 
Now, we need to trust all the time in that purification for sins that Jesus Christ has made for us in our relationship with the Father. When we sin, the first thing that we should think of is not that I'm going to get it or something's going to be a consequence of this, but rather, no, I need to go to my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and just gently say to him, Lord Jesus, forgive me of this sin and cleanse me from it. What is the promise? He's faithful and just. He forgives us of our sins. He cleanses us from our unrighteousness. So he encourages us to understand Jesus as God's perfect teacher. He encourages us to see Jesus as the high priest that takes away our sin. But then, too, he encourages us to see Jesus as the king. First of all, in these opening verses, it says that this Jesus is the one through whom God made the entire universe. And it says that he upholds this entire universe at all times by the word of his power. And after he had functioned as this role of a great high priest, it says that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he had inherited this name, the name Son. Now if we go back into the Old Testament, the second psalm, we see that this is a title of enthronement, a title that Jesus bears on the basis of his personhood and a title that he bears on the basis of the work that he has accomplished. He is the king of the universe, but he is the king and keeper of our soul. And this is a king that we want to know. This is a king that we want to listen to. And this is a king that we want to obey in every dimension of our life. And as we do this, and as we see Christ in this way, we begin to see him in the fullness that the author intends for us to see him. And this is the type of understanding of Christ that sustains a life. Pat and I were in our 20s, and I was a student at the Graduate School of uh, Columbia Bible College, and there was this cute girl that lived in the apartment just across from us, and her boyfriend, Tommy. Well, Nancy became a Christian, and then on a Good Friday service, Tommy became a Christian, and in becoming a Christian, about 25, 26 years of age, just a few years behind Pat and I, uh, I began to disciple him using navigator materials that were available at that time. And we had a number of months together, got him plugged into a local church, both he and she. During the time in that church, they began to grow. They were hearing the word of God preached to them. They were involved in Bible studies. They were learning how to pray. They were learning how to give. The spiritual formation that was taking place in their lives while they were single was somewhat parallel. And then, a couple years later, they married. They moved down to the First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina, because it was right where they relocated. Now they're growing in that church. Six 
miscarriages. You, you've got to have uh, a savior. Well, finally, a daughter. And then, you know, he's moving along in a wonderful career, and he's in his 40s. And again, constantly in this church, the means of God's ordinary grace coming through the preaching of the word, coming through the Sunday school classes, the services of that church. But Tommy now comes to about 50, and he goes through a serious ethical, personal crisis. Now this man, up to this point in time, had been the friend of so many people that were hurting. And he kept telling them about Jesus, and he kept encouraging them to walk with Jesus, and when they failed, he would come alongside him, but now he's failed. Now he's failed. All those people that allowed him to minister to them now he allowed them to minister to him. The church disciplined him. The church restored him. And now, this same man is very much an active member of that church and growing. Again, telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his fullness, in all of his ability to save, no matter what comes in to their personal lives. Jesus is his encouragement, no matter what the difficulty that he faces. The second thing I would want us to see in this letter that is written to encourage is that we're to press on in our knowledge of all those people who have ever lived by faith that are recorded for us in the scripture. We should know their stories, in other words. The, the writer in this epistle recounts all manner of incidents that took place in the history of God's people in the Old Testament. He explains the roles of angels that we read about in chapter 1 here of Hebrews. Later, he's talking about the great goal that God had for mankind in mankind's failure to attain to that goal, and that Jesus has come as the perfect man to perfectly fulfill that role of being created in the image of God. He speaks of Moses. He speaks of Joshua. He speaks of the priest of the Old Testament. He speaks of the sacrifices of the Old Testament. But when he comes to chapter 11, he begins to tell the tales, the wonderful tales of people of faith, women who were tremendous characters of God's formation, created 
deep in their person that were able to stand up against any trial or persecution that would come their way. And men that were just like that as well, their character had been framed by the stories that they had known and the truths that they known about this great God that had revealed himself to them and was worshipped in the temple and then in the... Uh, all of the things that were a part of their lives. He rejoices to tell these stories. That's what he does. He rejoices to tell these stories to you and to me in order that we would know them and that we would hang our hat on the God that they hung their hat on. Now, why is he doing this? Well, I believe the reason he's doing this is because the context in which they live. They were living during the time of the Roman Empire. And at that time, there had developed in there a cult of the emperor, in which the emperor was being worshipped as some type of divinity. And in this cult of the emperor, a good Roman was being called upon to say this, Caesar is Lord. Caesar's the one that's going to take care of you. Caesar's the one who's going to protect you. Caesar is going to do all manner of things for you. Your obligation as a good Roman is to say and to attest publicly Caesar is Lord. Paul had been beheaded. Peter had been crucified upside down. Christians were being labeled in the Roman Empire as the primary cause for their cultural weakness. Now, what's real? we have to ask ourselves a question. They had to ask themselves a question. What is real? Rome rules the day. Rome owns the day. There's no other power like the power of Rome. It's a power that can be felt. Now, you're a Christian. You've been trained to say that Jesus is Lord. You've been trained to know that God's perfect teacher is Jesus. You've been trained to understand that this Jesus as a priest can deal with all of your sins and create in you a sterling character by the outpouring of his Holy Spirit working with the Word of God to form in you a character, well, that looks like it's created in the image of God. And you've come to understand that this Jesus as King created the world, sustains the world, will consummate the world, that this Jesus is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords, in your face with what's real. 
What is real? Is what we see today real around us in our culture? Is this reality? Or is reality the unseen things, the heavenly city that this author tells us that we are to aspire toward? And that we are to look to the things that are unseen as more real because they're based on the better promises that God makes in the scripture that are crystallized in the person of his son becoming man to become our savior. Is this what's real? And they were faced with this. We may be faced with this in days to come in just the same manner as they faced it. The writer concludes his story about these people of the Old Testament and their faith. In chapter 11, he speaks of these people. He says, you know, others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. That, that means they were hit with rocks. I know some of you think <laughs> hit with rocks. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and the dens and caves of the earth. And all of these through, uh, comment, all these though, commended through their faith did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. But after concluding this way, he focuses on Jesus. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings to us so closely. Here it is again, let us run with endurance the, face, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let me give you an illustration. I went to this little church in South Alabama. There I am. I'm getting to know the people there in that church. Excuse me. One of the people said, you know, you really need to go down to the little town of Defuniac Springs and visit Mary Whitehurst in the nursing home. I thought, great, I'll go down to find her. Got the address, went to the nursing home, walked in, asked the people at the desk, Pastor, First Presbyterian Church, Floral, Alabama, come to see Mary Whitehurst. Down the hall to the right, second room on the right, you'll find her. Walked in, here's Mary probably in her 80s, in a wheelchair. So I sat down in front of Mary and I said, Mary, my name's John Kinzer. I'm the new pastor in the church in Florala, your church. Nothing. Zero. <laughs> 
Five, ten minutes later after zero, it's old time for John to make a getaway. And I'm out of there. Well, I, you know, most of you know I'm not easily dissuaded. So I just backed up and a couple weeks later had to be down in Defuniac Springs, thought I'd try this again. And I did. And I got the same thing. Zero. Well, I went back to one of these men in the town named Rex Whitcomb. And I said, Rex, I'm getting zero. He says, well, hard. By the way, Mary was famous in our city. I said, she was? Yep, she was famous. I says, what did she do? She worked at the garment factory. I said, well, what was she famous for? Oh, she had memorized the catechism front to back perfectly, had it all down cold. Knew, memorized scripture. She was never married, lived alone, just gave herself to theology and the scripture. She was famous for it. Well, armed with this, back to the nursing home. Sit down in front of Mary Whitehurst. Mary, I'm John Kinzer, the pastor of the church in Florale, Alabama, your church. Nothing. I looked at her and I said, Mary, let me ask you a question. What's the chief end of man? She opened her mouth and she said, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I said, Mary, what do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God in what duty God requires of man. And I did about five or six of these. And I said, Mary, the Lord is my shepherd. And she word perfectly the 23rd Psalm. I began, our Father, who art in heaven. And she did word perfectly the Lord's Prayer. I said, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, and we did Psalm 100. We had many visits. I learned many, many things about Mary's life. But the key to the door of her life was through her heart. Her heart belonged to God. We need to press on to maturity in our knowledge of the scriptures. It will sustain us. Now the third and final thing I want to call our intention is the need to encourage. He's written to encourage. He's written to encourage us to press on to maturity. He talks about how people in this church had been involved in ministering and in still ministering to people who were undergoing Christian persecution. In other words, even though they would be labeled by going to help somebody that the Roman government had labeled as being a person that was a pest in the culture, these people continued to minister to these people and take care of their needs. Where did they get this idea to do this? 
Well, what did Jesus say? Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Rejoice and be glad, for such is the kingdom of God. Jesus said things like this, I was sick and you fed me. I was, or you came and comforted me. I was hungry and you fed me, in prison and you visited me. And they understood this because this author is calling them back to that teaching of Jesus. And so throughout this time of persecution, these people were one another's sunshine. I just threw sunshine in there because my mom did not like gray days. She loved South Florida because it didn't stay gray long. When it got gray, she got a little gray. When the sun came out, she beamed. We need to be one another's sunshine in things that relate to the Lord. We've got a deacon's fund in this church. It has been the sunshine to many, many people in their time of financial need because one another. We gave to help one another. We have these various other aspects of the life of our church. If people learn that you're sick and shut in in this church, what do we do? We call up and we take a meal. If it's really severe, we organize that meals would be continuously brought until the time of need is over. If there's a death, the Sunday schools come to the forefront in taking care of whatever is needful for the family in their time of sorrow. All of this is simple, but it's genuine Christian encouragement. But what if reality overcomes a life? What if something like what happened to my friend Tommy was to happen to one of us? What if it was divorce? What if it was a serious ethical lapse? We meet one another's needs in easy times, and we get into the routine, into the pattern, in the discipline of meeting these needs in easy times, because a difficult time must come. But when the difficult time comes, we cannot break the pattern. We encourage one another. We've been trained in the easy times to meet one another's needs in the difficult times. And so we go and we try to restore and deal, as this epistle says to this high priest Jesus, he can deal gently with those who have been afflicted with sin. He can deal gently with them. And we learn to deal gently with one another. But what if something becomes more difficult than this? What if it becomes difficult for the entire culture? What are we going to do then? What if our room says, as so many are saying, 
the Christians are the blame. It's not that it's not being said. It's being said loud and clear. Will we be encouraged? Will we look at the verses and say, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake and accept that and minister to one another's needs? That's what this epistle is calling us to do. We know who Christ is. We have a real relationship with him. We know the stories of faith. And we want to be one of those people that lives out one of those stories ourselves. Hopefully, it'll be in easy times. May not be. But we want to be someone else's sunshine throughout this year in encouraging them in every way to walk with the Lord so that none would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And not one would fall away, but many, many would be added because of the integrity, the strength of this relationship with God that our church has. Strength and integrity of our knowledge of the scripture and our strength and our commitment to one another. Let's pray. Now, Father, as we go into a new year, may we be encouraged. May we be encouraged by your word and spirit to live like a follower of Jesus Christ, to do it together in this church, and to nurture one another. And we pray that you would bring this kind of integrity to all the structures, all the levels and spheres of influence in our culture that all of us as Christians, wherever we are, will live for the honor and the glory of Christ, come what may. We thank you that you will never leave us or forsake us, and that we will never leave or forsake one another. And so we make our prayer with thanksgiving in Christ's name. Amen.